0: Okay, we're good to go. A brand new series that, as Claire said, will take us through to the summer, or at least through to those months that we traditionally regarded as the summer. Uh, uh, This morning we're only going to be in one verse at the beginning of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. You can find it in your Bible just to prove that it's there. It really is there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So very simply this morning, we'll think about the author Paul and the recipients, the faithful uh, saints in Ephesus, or at least that's what it says. So first of all, Paul, an apostle by the will of God. The term apostle simply means someone that's sent, sent out. And we know that from the moment of his conversion... Uh, the Lord Jesus sent Paul out to be a missionary to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish world. And we can read about that in Acts chapter 9 or in many other places when Paul refers to himself, he simply says, I'm the one that's been sent. That's what an apostle means. That's his job, that's his role. What I want us to think about this morning is the next phrase, by the will of God. That is... What Paul does as an apostle is because God willed it, God ordained it, it was God's purpose for him to do it. Which presupposes, or at least for me raises the question, what are you doing, what am I doing by the will of God? What's the will of God for you and for me? So very often Paul would say, this is who I am, I'm this and I am this because of the will, the purpose of God so what are you doing what am I doing this week today this month this season of my life that is by the will of God I'm doing it because God planned it for me to do God prepared me for it and God has positioned me to make it possible now I want you to think for a moment now this is a real think not a preacher's think where everyone drifts away, a real think about the components of your week. There are probably three or four major things that make up your week. Maybe you have particular family responsibilities or your primary responsible relationships are at work. And then you have a a leisure set of networks and social groupings and then there's a few other things tagged on the end maybe to that. Think of those things, the, the dominant things that comprise your week, your life. And Spirit of God, just help us. What are those things that you are doing, those components that you are sure today are by the will of God? That's really cool, really important. What are those other things that maybe you're not so sure about? Has God really planned for me to be there, prepared me for this, positioned me in this place? And then what are those things that actually as you think about it here and now you think well God that's not part of God's will for me just now. You see it's a really important question for us to ask ourselves and we'll come at it again and again in this letter that Paul wrote. We're calling this series Live It because this whole book is about living the life that God has given you. The whole letter is about living where he's placed you, recognizing that where he's placed you is for a purpose. And if where you are is not where he has placed you, then you need to get out of where you are into the place where he has positioned you. Because that's the discovery. At the heart of this book, Ephesians 2 verse 10, we read these famous words. For we are God's workmanship, craftsmanship created in Christ Jesus, what for? To do good works. What kind of good works? Well, the good works that Jesus has already planned in advance for us to do. As the New Living Translation puts it, that some of you are enjoying reading, we are God's masterpiece. Here I am, and here you are, God's masterpiece for the purposes for which he's designed you and placed you. It's so important Because only what you do by the will of God matters. Only what you do by the will of God matters. Only the life in Christ matters. Only the life in Christ is purposeful in kingdom terms. Only the life in Christ is the eternal, dynamic life that Jesus came to bring. So what are you today by the will of God? What is it? What are the relationships that you're engaging in by the will of God? What are the opportunities by the will of God? What has he planned, he prepared, he positioned you for? So, He says, Paul, I'm apostle by the will of God. His current location at the time of writing is uh, Rome. He's there under house arrest, effectively in, in prison in his own home. He's coming towards the end of his life. His circumstances at this point in the journey seem anything like the pioneer apostle that God had called him to be. Yet still he says, I'm called, I'm apostle by the will of God. In other words, it doesn't matter about my age, or my circumstance, or my location. It doesn't matter about my limitations of health, or finance, or opportunity. Whatever limit earth, the temporal now, may be placing on me, Paul says, I am in this position by the will of God. It's an amazing thing to say, isn't it? By the will of God. It's a a tremendously important and significant perspective. He knew that even though the circumstances were not what he wanted them to be, this was God's will for him. And he was living out his calling as an apostle where God had placed him. You and I will often say, I wish I was somewhere else. If I had a different life, I lived in a different place, I was in a different setting, then I would be able to follow Jesus. Paul says, no, it's nothing to do with any of those things. You can be in the will of God, whatever your circumstances are right now. The only person, to my knowledge, who in the last few years has personally Built a relationship with someone, shared Jesus with them, and seen that person come to Christ is Jane Laws. A member here, most of you don't know Jane, because effectively she's been housebound for the last decade. It's nothing to do with circumstance, is it? In the end. So where are you by the will of God this morning? Because that's what will come again and again. That's why this is about live it, because it's about that which counts. So Paul's there in prison at the end of his life, still feeling called as an apostle. Uh, and what, what, what it, it causes me to do, knowing where he is, for, for, for most of his writing now, he can only look back. Do you know you get to that stage of life? When you look back, much more than you look forward. There's a natural progression towards that. That's where he is. He's looking back over what has been. And as we look back over what has been for Paul, there are a number of things that I think are quite fascinating about his journey. You see, in his early days, Paul travelled extensively. He was young and enthusiastic, and he started churches very quickly, and he moved on, and he started another church, and he moved on. It was an amazing time, it was an exciting time, and lots of people came to faith. First part of Acts tells that story. However, Even by the end of Paul's first missionary journey, and there were three, maybe four, depending on how you regard his last journey, four journeys, the end of his first major missionary journey, he's beginning to recognise that not everything is as brilliant as he thought it was going to be the churches that he planted quickly and moved on from were beginning to struggle. And so at the end of his first missionary journey, when he's tired and worn out, and quite frankly he wants to go home, he retraces some of his steps to go back to those earlier churches because they were already beginning to struggle. He would go back and he would strengthen them, it says, and encourage them, and on occasions he would leave one of his team members behind in that church to help them to continue to grow. What's interesting about this is that when Paul starts off on his second missionary journey, it's like he's learned something from the first, and is going to do the second journey differently. As he goes through his life, he's willing to learn to become more effective in the place where God has put him, in the roles that God has given him. As an apostle at the beginning, he's there by the will of God, Even so, he recognises that in his humanity, he needs to learn, to develop, and to grow to become more effective in that will and purpose that God has for him. So Paul was learning to become more effective, which begs the question, what are we learning just now? As disciples of Jesus, what are we learning so think about these journeys with me for a moment, his second missionary journey, he takes a different strategy, he goes to uh, uh, plants new churches just the same, he moves on quite quickly, but this time he uh, anticipates what might happen and he leaves one of his team members uh, behind as he carries on the journey. He was willing to accept that his first go was not the best that he could be. And I love that about this man who was so educated, his head was too big to get in through the door. Who was so intelligent that he would knock spots off all of us. Yet he said, as a disciple of Jesus, there are things I have to learn in the way that I live. Don't know about you, but I feel like I've got a lot to learn. And learning, for Paul, equaled change. If you're learning then you're changing, you're adapting, you're growing. Uh, And that's his story. Learning, developing, changing to become more effective at the role, the task that God had given him. He keeps pushing on. Now, in many areas of life, we think about this naturally. In your career, you probably do not think about simply standing still. You might do. But you're more likely to think, how can I develop here? What additional skills do I need here? What's my next move going to be? How am I as a person going to develop my character and my skill set to become better and more effective in the roles where I'm placed? So we do that in business. We do that in parenting, I hope. Pray more for your kids if you're not. I mean, clearly, you're clueless when you have your first kid. You're equally clueless by the time you've got your fourth but at least you're having a go at something different because you realise the first three didn't work (laughs) so pray for me but we're thinking how can I do this, this hasn't worked this hasn't worked we decided at the end of the meal it'd be good to pray together kids ended up throwing food at it, it didn't work what are we going to do differently and so we're developing somehow in churches we can have this tendency to go "This this is what we do this is what we do this is what we do And Paul goes, no, 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 God's given us minds, creative beings, personalities, characters, skills, and he's learning to develop what God has given him in order to become more effective on subsequent journeys. So on his second journey, as I said, he starts churches and then leaves a team member behind. But by the time he gets to the end of his second journey, he's still troubled, I think, by his lack of effectiveness in what I think he believes God's calling him to do. So this has been his strategy up to now. He's gone along, He started a church very quickly, where he's gathered a group of people around him, and then he's moved on. Uh, uh, And that was his first missionary journey, effectively. Second missionary journey went like this. He he effectively did the same thing. grab someone, pull them in, pull a crowd around, start a church, it's all going well, and I'll leave a leader behind, one of my team. So he leaves a, a team leader behind to help that church sustain itself. The trouble with both of those models... And what I think began to really frustrate Paul reading between the lines, is that after an initial exciting phase of growth, something inevitable happens. The growth curve, if that's all that's happening, will always be like this. It will always plateau because you'll gather a core and then the, the bigger the core, the harder it becomes to add to that core and and paul's getting frustrated about the churches that are starting well and then they're beginning to struggle he's having to write to them there are issues all this stuff going on and so by the time he gets to his third missionary journey he thinks to himself well i'm going to do something different here i'm going to try a different strategy in order to 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 take what i'm learning to take what i'm seeing and to put it into practice so that's what he does and you can read about this in Acts chapter 19, just the chapter before the one that Chris read to us. You might want to just have it open for a moment. Acts chapter 19 and verse 8. Paul is arriving at the city of Ephesus. Suddenly you get the connection. Book of Ephesians, Ephesus. Clever, eh? So he gets to the city of Ephesus and uh, he's going to find his sweet spot here. Suddenly what God's been doing in him, what God's been teaching him about, what he's been adapting and changing is going to come to fruition. He starts off just like usual, by preaching, gathering a group of people, trying to build a new community. He goes first to the Jews, uh, as was his custom. Uh, nothing new there. Then verse 9. Nothing new. Acts chapter 19 verse 9. Some of them became obstinate. Nothing new about that. They refused to believe and publicly malign the way. That's always been the case. Some people respond to the gospel. Some people don't. That's the deal. We share Jesus. Some people will run a mile. Some people will run towards us. That's just the way it is. Nothing unusual. Then we read... Uh, he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So he made some disciples, and instead of trying to make more disciples, instead of that being the dominant beat of his day, the dominant beat of his day became taking those new converts and spending for two years in Ephesus teaching them and pouring his life into them, sharing Jesus with them, helping them to become fully mature in the faith. What was the result? The result, verse 10, this went on for two years, the result of that is that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. The result of Paul working really hard with a smaller group of people was, in the end, that a whole province came to faith. That's the fastest growth that the book of Acts ever records. Phenomenal growth. He invests in those first disciples intensively, and this perhaps is the important ingredient. Paul goes back and thinks about Jesus. And employs a new strategy much closer to the same one that Jesus had employed. So he gathers a group of people. You get this gathering in. And then instead of moving on, what Paul does is stay there and work really hard for a couple of years with that group of people. Teaching them to be like Jesus in every way. Now what does a disciple do? A disciple reaches new disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And so Paul works really hard with this group of people, and they start drifting off back to Ephesus, was a cultural centre, a bit like London, a capital for the region, gathering people in, and people go back to the provinces, back to their homes. For, for two years he did this, but the net result was the strongest momentum after those two years was back out. As a result, he was able to say that the whole of the region heard about the gospel. He hasn't moved more than half a mile for two years. That's a long time staying put for a guy that traveled 1,500 miles in his first missionary journey but he's changed his strategy to make him more effective. So these people that really understand what it is to build a community of disciples go out and they then do the same back where they've been placed. They gather people in, but they've understood what Paul did for them and so they do it for someone else and you get the strong momentum going out. And this happens, of course, with lots of different people. As a result, you get the beginnings of a viral growth. And that growth curve, as we know, goes like that. It starts off with not much happening. For two years, Paul's going, I'm stuck with these group of people they're doing my head in. But as he poured his life into them, as they captured what Jesus could do with an ordinary life, and as they went back to their homes, to their provinces, to their places of work, and so on, they'd learned enough in order to start their own communities. And so the gospel began to grow in a viral fashion. That's why Susan Boyle, when she was on Britain's Got Talent or whatever it was, suddenly got that ginormous number of hits on YouTube, not because someone kept advertising, go on, listen to Susan Boyle on YouTube. That, no one would have done that. But it just spread virally because people just passed it one to another. Uh, And Paul, as I say, in Ephesus, finds his sweet spot, does it very differently to what he'd done before. And it's probably no result, no accident, that the Ephesian church is the one that we hear about way more than any other church in the New Testament. It's the church that was most dominant in mission in the New Testament, and it's the one I say that comes across uh, in the pages of Scripture more than the others, even, in fact, the Jerusalem church where it all began. So we'll come back maybe to that in a moment. But the point I want to make is this, is that Paul was willing to change what he did, to adapt what he did, to learn from what he did, even though it was going well. You know, if we were seeing people come to Christ and we were planting churches, we'd be pretty happy with that. But Paul wasn't happy just with that, because he could see a window of how a missional movement might begin, might begin, rather than just starting one-off congregations. Uh, and so he left behind what was good in order to reach for something better. And you will have heard it said of Mary and Martha, uh, uh, the, the, the example that Jesus had of Mary and Martha about Mary choosing something better so often. What stops us choosing something better is something good that we've already got. And I ask you, are you willing to let go of something that's good to reach for something better? So the question, what are we learning? What are we learning? What are you adapting at the moment? What are you reflecting on in your life and trying to change because you sense it's not working the way God's calling you to be and to live? And just in case you're not sure whether you have much to learn or anything to change, let me put it like this. I'm not aware of anyone in this church who's currently effective at reaching and discipling new people, which, of course, is the primary task of a disciple. We are currently an unfruitful church. Now, that feels a bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? Let me put it this way. It feels quite uncomfortable where I'm standing. What would make us very eager to learn to adapt to change, to do anything that would make us more effective than the realization that we're not bearing the fruit that we should? And to be honest, you only get a church that's willing to do anything that would make us more effective. You only get a church that's eager to learn to adapt to change. If I am eager to learn to adapt and change. And even that doesn't credit a church that's eager to learn, adapt, and change. The only way we get a church that's eager to learn, adapt, and change if together we are eager to learn, to adapt, and change because we want to be fruitful. So what are we learning? What are we learning? What's God poking you about? What's God stirring you about? What are you unsettled about? Paul changed because it wasn't effective or as effective as it could be. And Paul changed because he could see the model that Jesus... At the end of three years, Jesus still really got 12 blokes, and then 72. It it hasn't been revival yet. It's that slow exponential curve. You see, Jesus is down here, building something really good here. And once this takes off, it's unstoppable. And, And Paul sees that with a clarity that he hadn't seen until he was halfway through his ministerial life. And he suddenly adapts what he's doing in order to respond to that. So at Ephesus, Paul starts huddling those early disciples... Teaching and training them until they became reproducing disciples themselves. Then he let them go. And that's what they naturally went off to do. As a result, Ephesians became a center for a missional movement that was to spread right over the province of Asia Minor. Communities of Christians would grow up very rapidly. Places like Laodicea, Colossae, Smyrna, Thyatira, Laodicea. I've mentioned that one. Philadelphia, Smyrna and beyond. And it's now about six or seven years later from that time in Ephesus and he writes a letter to this missional movement to encourage them in the faith so that's Paul now who does he write to your bible says to the saints in Ephesus but you'll notice uh, in your bible if you're uh, a keen if you look keenly a little letter by the side I'm pretty sure it's in the pew bibles as well a little note, a little footnote, a little reference that simply reminds us that what we think is a simple phrase, the saints in Ephesus, actually the earliest Bibles, the earliest manuscripts, didn't have the word in Ephesus. It was completely missing. And that's kind of weird. You'd expect the earliest manuscripts, the most accurate manuscripts, to have in Ephesus if this was a letter written to a, uh, just a single group of Christians in Ephesus. But it's much more strange than that. All of Paul's letters that he writes to churches that he knows are very personal. They have lots of personal greetings in them. You will know from what Chris read in Acts chapter 20 that Paul knew the Ephesian church really well. He'd spent longer there than almost anywhere else. He, it was a very emotional departing when he said goodbye to the Ephesian elders after God had started this missional movement that had spread virally across the whole uh, region. As he left they were moved because they knew they probably humanly might not ever see each other again. So there was loads of personal connection and yet here we have a letter to the Ephesians with nothing personal in when in all of Paul's other letters that were like this he would write lots of personal greetings there's a second thing that's a bit weird the third thing that's a bit weird about this letter is that you will know from many of Paul's other letters he writes to address specific issues that are going on in the church but yet in this letter we have no specific issues going on at all so in 1 and 2 Corinthians the whole letter the whole two letters are a response to things that are going on but here he acts like he doesn't know what's going on. Here he writes like he doesn't know the people. It's important in our understanding. Because all of this has led scholars to believe that this is a circular letter, this is the first mail merge, mail out, that Paul sent to the whole diaspora, this whole missional movement that had spread over the whole region. There is some evidence that even the place was left for the name, and they'd write in Ephesus when they send a copy to, uh, Ephesus. They'd write in Smyrna when they send a copy to Smyrna. And, uh, or maybe did it on a Mac or something. But, j- just getting it out to the different people. In any case, identifying the letter as the letter to the Ephesians would also be perfectly natural and normal in this kind of situation I'm describing. Because they were the mother community. It was from the believers in Ephesus that these others had been blessed, converted, trained, and sent out. Uh, Ephesians was the mother church, if you like, of what was going on in the region. And suddenly all the pieces seemed to fit together that Paul's writing this mail out to all the communities of this new missional movement that started during his time in Ephesus. He's writing as if he doesn't know them because he doesn't. Many of the people receiving this letter would be second, third, fourth generation disciples. I don't mean in age generation, but Paul had discipled someone who discipled someone who discipled someone who was discipling someone. Uh, and so of course he didn't know them. It, it had grown way faster than anybody could possibly keep up with. That's what happens when the Spirit uh, falls. So let's get back to the point. Who are they? They're the saints, he says, in Ephesus. Who are, who are these people? Well, they're um, people that go, uh, uh, the, the ordinary people, ordinary saints that have gone and lived their ordinary lives where God has placed them, but yet in this capacity that they'd learned from Paul to reproduce the Jesus life in them to others around them. So Paul's writing to mums and dads, he's writing to slaves and workers, he's writing to grandparents and neighbours, to young people who'd learnt to live it, where God had placed them. And he calls those people saints. Now I suspect that there are many reasons why he calls them saints. But the one I just want to highlight uh, this morning is this. By calling them saints, Paul is saying that these ordinary Christians who'd been become disciples disciples of Jesus and had learned to do what ordinary disciples of Jesus should do and that's reproduce the Jesus life in other people. And he says, You're saints. You're at the top of the pile in God's hierarchy. This is a bit awkward. Is <laughs> at the top of the pile if it's one of you, no. <laughs> At the top of the pile in God, Andrew, put your phone away. It's at the top of the pile in God's hierarchy. You see, if you're a lay reader, then you can preach but you can't do some other stuff that a curate does if you're a curate then you can do some other stuff but you can't serve preside at communion you can only do that if you're a vicar so if you're a vicar you can do all that stuff but what you can't do as a vicar unless you're a bishop is to consecrate a vicar now as i understand it saints are at the top of the pile even the pope isn't a saint until he's been dead a bit and then maybe he becomes a saint so you, so Paul says, these ordinary people that have learned to reproduce the Jesus life, wherever God's placed them, they're, set, they're at the top of the pile in Jesus's, in God's agenda. So what can saints do? Well, this is it. You see, saints can do everything. How cool is that? You see, when Jesus gathered the 12 disciples, he said to them, go and make disciples and teach them to do everything that I have commanded you. So the 12 can do everything that teach the 72 to do everything, that teach the, whatever the next maths is to do everything. And you suddenly get this exponential growth of people that can do everything. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is poured out on just the posh people? On everyone. The greatest mandate from heaven that you and I can do everything and you've heard me say this before i'm longing for the day when we really grasp that we can do everything you see you might say well we don't have bishops and vicars and curates and stuff but we do have that mentality if someone wants to come to faith quick let's get simon or claire if someone needs some prayer let's get simon or claire or whoever if someone wants communion let's get let's Well, what about you? You do. Because the Spirit's on you. You see how long for the time when you baptize the people you have won for Christ. Do you realize that's your right, your privilege, and your honor to do that? And people like me have been a bit slow in cottoning onto it? Because it's the only bit of the job we enjoy? No, I didn't say that. (laughs) Do, do, Do you see what? I mean, wouldn't that be fantastic? Well, why should I baptise someone you won for Christ? How weird would that be, really? When someone that you've gathered round you, nurtured in the faith, and then you've sent them out to live the Jesus life where God's placed them, and they flourish there, and they reach more people that flourish there. That's your story. That's what you're doing. That's what they're going on to do, because the Spirit rests on them, and they can do everything because they're saints. And so it unfolds. And so some really important things here that set the scene for the whole of this letter but but provide a backdrop to what was going on in this New Testament period. That every disciple becomes reproducing. That every church becomes a church planting church. And I don't mean services and buildings and programs and budgets even though there's a place for that. But every disciple Can start a community of people that worship Jesus that disciple each other that go out in mission you've got a church you could start a church this afternoon and in Paul's day many of them did and that's the challenge many of them did and they used this word oikos household because they planted churches where they were and we'll come across this idea of household again in this letter, this word oikos, because that, you see, well, when they started a church, they, they could only do it in their home, and with their family, and with their business colleagues, because there was no church for them to go to. There were no programs and events for them to support, so they just lived it where they were. And so that's why you'll see in this letter to Ephesians, you see it again in Colossians, that Paul talks about all kinds of spiritual stuff, and immediately he talks about husbands and wives, parents and children, business partners, masters and slaves. Why? Because that was the church. None of this, this is our family, and this is our church. They didn't know that. And this is why the journey we're on is so important. We have to bring this all together. We have to live it because what god wants us to do is not come to church but be church where we are and that's what this letter was about to encourage christians ordinary people ordinary mums and dads ordinary workers and managers and and co-workers and ceos and goodness knows whatever else ordinary people doing ordinary things that simply planted church where they were that's why it's so important That we experiment with these huddles. That's why it's so important that we encourage people with their missional visions. That's why it's so important that we get a handle on this extended family. That's why it's so important that we launch missional communities. We'll launch one next week and the following Sunday. Don't miss either of those. These things are really important. At the beginning, they might look exactly the same as what we already have. They might look like this. Not much is happening. But imagine if we were sowing seeds here for something like that. So underneath, they're different, even though externally they might look the same. And uh, happy to talk uh, about that at another time in more detail. And finally, and uh, I'll finish with this, they're also called the faithful. The faithful. I've been in churches all my life. That's why I'm so grey at such a young age. Although yesterday... Yesterday, someone at the wedding said I was in my 30s. How cool is that? Yes. Praise the Lord. What was I saying? Faithful. I've been in churches all my life. The word faithful is used in two different ways. Most commonly, I think, in church life. The first way it's used is to say that that person or that couple or that small group, whatever, they're ever so faithful. And what we mean by that, most of the time, when we say it in our church vocab way, is that they're faithful, they come to church every week, they get to the prayer meeting, the Bible study, whatever it might be, and they do that even when times are hard, even when it's difficult, even when it's snowing and they still make it to church. Even when they're not feeling very well. Even when they've had a hard week and they're tired. These are the faithful people. And faithfulness becomes synonymous with attending something in some way. Now with the trustees and some others over the last two months, we've been praying and thinking a lot about the history of our church. And this is one of the things that, that, we, that we have found that we can easily just kind of fall into. It's an easy thing to fall into where attendance becomes almost the highest value. When we say that, we know it's not right, but we kind of live that out. If you're faithful in church every Sunday, then you're a better Christian than someone who simply can't do that. Or if you're in church twice on a Sunday when that was possible, then you're clearly better than the once a Sunday people, aren't you? And if you make it to the prayer meeting, you're almost ready to be invited to become the fourth member of the Trinity and we make attendance the kind of value so you can do what you want in the week live what you want you know but if you're there in those things that's that's what it degenerates into if we're not careful and we don't mean that but that's kind of where it heads we can easily see how it happens and we buy into it from time to time the problem with that is the christian life has got nothing to do with what you attend it's how you live it that's what it's on about all the time And the reason it's on about how you live it all the time is that in the New Testament times there wasn't really much to attend apart from the temple or you were in your local community. Live it. How do you live it? The other phrase is a faithful few. Ever heard that in church? A faithful few. I can guarantee that when only a few people turn up to something someone will say the faithful few. And then someone else will quote, well, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, there's Jesus in the midst. Now, whatever else Jesus was saying in that phrase, he was not apologizing for small numbers. Whatever else. And so in that phrase, being faithful becomes synonymous with we faithfully keep this thing going, even though no one's interested and it's not really bearing any fruit but we're faithful at it Paul doesn't mean either of those things he's saying something quite different here not least because there weren't these big central churches and places to go so he writes to the saints faithful what faithful in Christ faithful at living the life the only way you can be faithful in Christ is if you're living it As if you're living in Christ, in your family, in your home, in your places of work, in your neighborhood, wherever God's placed you. That's the faithfulness of the saints that caused the gospel to go viral. So, are you faithful on Monday night? Or at 11.30 tomorrow morning? Are you faithful? Are you faithful at Wednesday lunchtime? I don't mean to what you do, but to the person that you're living for. Are you faithful Friday afternoon? Are you in the will of God at those times? Are you learning to be more useful, more effective, more fruitful at those times? Are you living as a saint, knowing in each of those moments that you can do everything to reproduce the Jesus life in you in someone else. To be honest, if at those times you're still just doing the same thing, it's not working, folks. And I say that to me first. I'm changing, trying to change all the time. What I do Because I recognise that where we are isn't working the way we believe it should. That requires something of me personally. And requires something of you personally. If we're serious about this Jesus life. Making a difference out there. That's the faithfulness Paul is celebrating. The people that sussed it. Not faithful in church, but faithful out there. Faithful to live the Jesus life where they've been placed. And as they learned that, they became agents of change all over that region. Where is God calling you to live it then this week? So I want to ask you to think about this with me just for a few moments. Where is it that you really sense this morning, I'm there by the will of God, if only I would open my eyes and see it. Where is that place? And so my invitation to you this week is to take your Bible and to read it somewhere where you would never normally take your Bible and read it. Watch how it makes you feel. Listen carefully to what God might say. Watch what's going on around you. What does it mean to put my life under God's word in this place? Wherever that might be. You see, we open our Bibles in church. And actually, that's 93% of people that go to church. That's it. That's all they do. Open an average church, 93% of people only open the Bible in church. Isn't that shocking? (laughs) Sounds like this. (laughs) That's true here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then then there's a massive percentage of people. We only open our Bibles when we're sitting in our special chair. Who's old enough to have a special chair? Yeah, you know, special chair Bible. Open my Bible in a special chair. Haven't got my Bible, I'm not in my special chair. You know What does it mean to open your Bible in a different place? What does it mean to pray for three minutes somewhere where you would never usually pray? What does it mean to get into the boardroom three minutes before everyone arrives and pray? Why am I here, Lord? What are you giving me to say here, Lord? What's the real agenda here this afternoon? What do you want to do? Three minutes to pray when you get into your place of work, when you get into the shop floor, when you get into school, when you get into the class, when you get it wherever it is three minutes as you sit in the bar at your leisure club three minutes i'm going to pray well, what am i doing here what, what's this all about because unless this gospel works there it doesn't work and we have to transition our whole thinking our whole approach to this christian life being something that uh, and we know i mean it's, the words are stupid aren't they because we all go duh that's obvious." You know, we used to sing Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and all day Sunday. Isn't it grand? Who sang that? Oh. That's not good. Some of you are lying. That's not good. Uh, I mean, so, you know, so kind of we know it, but we don't live like that's true. Because we haven't, to be fair, been taught to. To be fair, we haven't been empowered to. This is not a downer on us. I mean, I'm really excited about us. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You know, we're at a really exciting place in the journey. It's not down, but I just want us to be open and realistic about where we are and what God's asking of us. What, What does it mean for it to work there? So what does it mean to talk to someone this week with the belief that you have everything in you to reproduce the Jesus life in them? Now there's a thought. What does that mean? And so, Lord, we gather our prayers uh, together this morning, and we're asking you to help us, help help us learn, think, adapt, change, help us to, to think what it means to live it where you've placed us, help us to be certain that where we are is actually where you've placed us, to be open to what you might do, to be looking for you to be at work. And help us, I pray, to be way more comfortable simply talking and praying one with another here. As we master that here, we have something to take outside. So build us, Lord. Pour out your Spirit. Because, Lord, we're aware of a world that's watching, waiting, longing, needing, needy people. Emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally, all around us needy people. And they need the compassion of Jesus.